the queue film conversations with andrew and phil i am phil and i love mark ruffalo and i am andrew and i have many guilty pleasure songs in my playlist <laughs> and uh yeah so we're here to talk to you about uh, a new film uh it's called begin again uh, directed by john carney with uh, mark ruffalo and kira knightley it's the biopic of poor old Michael Finnegan. He grew whiskers on his chin again. But along came the wind and blew them in again. Poor old Michael Finnegan, begin again. You can't beat references like that, folks. That's, uh, that is, that's a gem right there. Uh, none of what I just said is true. But, uh, but I think we all enjoyed it nonetheless. All one of you. Well, hopefully there's more than us listening to this podcast. <laughs> right, folks? Yeah. Uh, sure. Sure, that's what we tell ourselves. There's more listeners out there. That's, come on, there's got to be all those likes got to come from, from someplace. Somewhere. They got to come from somewhere. So anyway, so speaking of, of where they're coming from, those likes, yeah, uh, yeah. you can actually find us a few different places online. You can find our blog. It's www.in-the-q. That's the letter Q.com. And on that blog, we post all of our shows. We post um, comments that that listeners can you know discuss things about, and people can also leave behind uh, requests for films that they would like us to review. And then we also have a Facebook page. It's we do. It's uh, in the queue. Q U E U E. Film conversations with Andrew and Phil. Once again, that's another place where you can find our shows. And we also post sort of supplemental materials, websites, or I mean not websites, but links, videos, things that have to do with, uh, with what we're talking about with that particular film. That is true. And lastly, we have a podcast on iTunes that you can subscribe to. Once again, it's in the queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. And there you can find all of our episodes and you can have our new episodes delivered to you as they come out week by week. Boom. Boom. So let's talk about Begin Again. This is, uh, as I mentioned, it's a film by John Carney who made a film called Once, which I have not seen. Very popular independent film from a few years back. Popular, won an Oscar for Best Song. I, knew, I know that it much. It very much did. And this film is his, his next project after that. And basically, it's a story that takes place in New York City. And... Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the film, uh, we are treated to Kira Knightley, who reluctantly gets on a stage and performs a song, and she is seen by a person in the audience, and that person is Mark Ruffalo, and from there, we sort of go backwards in time, and we see what happens to both of their characters before that meeting in the, uh, in the little bar. Uh, yep. They both fall on hard times. They have bad luck. Um, I won't go into it too much just so you can you know, be surprised. But what happens ultimately is they form some sort of, a, I guess you'd call it an unlikely friendship of sorts, which is the term that a lot of you know, lesser <laughs> films go by. But, uh, but this, yeah. this is a better film than that. And so it it's also deals with romantic issues. Um, perhaps with the two of them, perhaps with other people, uh, we won't spoil it, but basically begin, begin again is a very music centered 
film. It's about making music. It is. Uh, it's about finding your voice, uh, whatever that may be. There's the movie is full of musicians, people who play music in real life, and like for example, CeeLo Green, uh, Adam Levine, Adam Levine, the the you know rhyme. It's an accident. Uh, we didn't plan that. And by the way, I just want to say that CeeLo Green's character name in this film is Treble Gum. Treble Gum. <laughs> I thought that was yep. uh, was highly amusing. So this is a good cast. I thought that the musicians in particular, since we just started talking about them, do you know a pretty good job. I mean, I think they're basically playing musicians. Um, but uh, I thought okay. I thought Adam Levine in particular. Adam Levine, uh, I enjoyed his 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 uh, his character because he is basically playing an egotistical musician, and mm-hmm. um, and I thought the way that Adam Levine basically did not spare the audience any of his wrongdoing. I mean, in the sense that you you sort of see him basically do a wrong by Keira Knightley's character, and he is basically coming across as somebody who's, who's broken the heart of a person who uh, is very endeared to the audience, and yet he does not basically have any sort of apology to make about it. And I thought that he basically portrayed the role of somebody who was an unflattering character, uh, but he did it in a way that was um, fairly honest, I would say, for him. And, okay. And what are you, Andrew is, uh, you should see his I, face right now. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I didn't think he, I, I didn't think he was bad, but I didn't think he was good either. Um, there was, there's a scene towards the end of the film where the, he and Keira Knightley are having a scene on a park bench and he, it, it is required that his character actually, uh, emote for the first time in the film really. And, uh, and he blows it hard. But couldn't you say that that's just the character's inability to emote no i mean no you don't think that he was as the a, a person who is playing like an egotistical rock star that he's just he's only able to put himself first and not... no because it's because that's at that point in the film there he is supposed to be not that he's supposed to be returning to a place where he was before he became this egotistical rock star and he the the performance requires of him something more than he's able to give. I was actually I actually was shocked by how bad <laughs> some of the, the line readings were in that particular scene. Just terrible, just awful. Well, I think I think that the I think it can be argued by people who have seen the film about about what his intentions were in trying to reunite. Okay. No, I think so. I think that yeah, it's not. It's it's I don't necessarily think that it was out of like a pure heart and sort of like a, a um, wanting to to have something. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I see what you're saying. I, yeah, like, I, I see what you're saying. I still think that uh, you're you're cutting him more slack than he deserves just because the character is crappy. Like, you know, like a good actor playing a bad actor is like that's a difficult thing to do mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so like uh, a good a, a person playing a real creep or someone who's emotionally cut off or unable to emote actually has to be able to do that uh it it, it can't just be a bad performance and then you say oh great well 
you know, because the character couldn't perform well, then, you know, they. Okay. Well, this is. I'm, I'm going to cut them the slack on this. Uh, I, I don't believe in that. All right. What's well, a bone of contention here, basically, between the two of us, as, as far as, as as far as his performance goes? Personally, I I found his character to be self-absorbed, um, un- incapable of putting anyone first other than himself. And I think for what for whatever reason, and I agree, this is not the forum to to psychoanalyze this character. But I thought that for whatever reason, he he wanted to have something that he had and lost. He wanted to have it back, but at the same time, he wanted to have his his way and put himself for, uh, first too. And so I think okay. I think that in in a sense, he was kind right, of vapid yeah. in that sense. I'm not going to agree with you at all on this. I think it was a bad performance. I don't think he's a good actor. Uh, I thought that he was fine in the film. Like he he was sort of typecast, and that helped make him believable. But it was a bad performance. All right, so we know where Andrew stands on it. We know where I stand on it. There are other performances in this film which you know I think we can both agree are are better. At least um, we got Mark Ruffalo, who, as I mentioned at the beginning of this show, uh, I'm fond of. I like Mark Ruffalo a lot. He has a lot of scenes in the film along with Kira Knightley, and. Uh-huh. Um, I thought Mark Ruffalo was – he had this certain kind of scruffy demeanor throughout the whole film because he's basically living um, a very sort of hand-to-mouth like existence. He At the beginning of the film, we see him getting up off of his mattress, shaving, and then going back to bed. And he's, his apartment is a shambles. Uh, he's a shambles. Er, early uh-huh. in the film, we see him basically getting fired from his job that he's had for several yep. years. And um, yeah. But he's got this sort of attitude that Mark Ruffalo has where he's dealing with a lot of like circumstances that are, you know, devastating. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet he manages to have... Uh, some humor about it and he manages to sort of still be somewhat endearing as a guy who's who's just barely kind of hanging on moment to moment and i've seen him in other films that i really like like zodiac just to mention one and um i i definitely am a fan of his performances i first became a fan of mark ruffalo in this film called you can count on me that came out um yeah. About fifteen years ago, it was that was his big breakout role. It was, yeah, and it was uh, he had a, it was a big uh, movie for him with Laura Linney, and they had a really good sort of rapport with each other as brother and sister. But um, yeah, no, I, I thought that uh, that Mark Ruffalo was was charming. I mean, he kind of a kind of like a rogue, roguish character who um, was was dealing with Kira Knightley throughout like the whole film, and you sensed that they were charming each other. And um, and that sort of and then to figure out or see what what becomes of that or how that plays out, you know, it happens later in the film. But um, I thought that they had chemistry and I was just a fan of his performance in this film. Uh, Yeah, I thought he was fine in it, but uh, I'm a huge Mark Ruffalo fan. I've liked him in nearly everything that I've seen him in. I think he's a really, really great actor and he does have a very easy way about him and very he's extraordinarily charismatic and a lot of fun to watch. But in this movie, I just thought he, I thought he was overplaying it. I thought that honestly, 
I'm, I'm, you're going to hear this from me in nearly all cases, uh, performance-wise in this film. Mm-hmm. But I thought that all the performances fell flat. I thought Keira Knightley's did too. I thought that the direction was just awful mm. in this film for for the actors. I thought that they, it seemed like they were set adrift, like they didn't really know what to do. Uh, I think their performances are not modulated very well. I think that they the the within a scene there it'll sort of swing wildly and it'll be inconsistent performance. Mm. Um, I thought that it was, I I thought it was weirdly not compelling most of the time, just, just based on performances. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, even though I like everybody in this film for the most part, the two best performances I thought that there were in the entire film were by supporting characters. And that was James Corden and Haley Steinfeld, who I thought were the best people in the film. I thought that they, and, and maybe it's because they had so little screen time that you didn't have a lot of opportunity for their performances to, to wobble. Uh huh. Well, but, but I felt like everybody else in the film, it was just, it was all over the map. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, well, let's talk about Haley Steinfeld for, for just a second. I, I mean, yeah, she, yeah. I thought that, um, her character was, was quite interesting and quite crucial to sort of the engine of the plot and, and the events that yes. follow. Yeah. Um, but I can't see why she would be sort of more, um, you you use that term like the people that Kira Knightley and and uh, the other actors were sort of unmoored in their like unmodulated that they were sort of set adrift I believe you said and yes. I was just wondering like so well Haley Steinfeld basically um, throughout the her performance she's she's sort of listening she's reacting and she's sort of in the car so to speak and she's sort of there she's kind of quiet but I was just thinking like well I mean what is it about her performance that you feel like was was different from the ones that were unmodulated? I felt like she was present. She was very present in every scene. She was there. She was like living in the scene. She was paying attention to the other actors. She was very, very present. Even when she was standing in the background, you could see that she was she, her, she was fully invested in her character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't feel like that was necessarily the case with the other uh, other actors. I, I think that they did. I think that they were invested in their characters, but their characters just uh, I just felt like. And maybe this was the writing. Maybe it was the the presentation of, of of maybe it was even the way that it was shot. I just thought that it was, uh, it was not. It was just silly and and dumb and kind of. Hmm. I I didn't like this movie. Oh okay. Well, I like the movie, but it was it was kind of it had kind of a goofy charm to it. It was definitely kind of a sort of a. I thought it was trying too hard. I thought every in every every aspect it was uh, it was trying to repeat the sort of lightning in a bottle. That they had with Once, which is, I think, a great film, mm-hmm. fantastic movie, um, and I think that uh, it it reads as disingenuous. When I'm when I was watching this film, I could only think that oh, this is what a a music lover thinks other music lovers want to see in a movie about music, and it it felt so false. It felt so awful. And I'll give you an example of that. Okay. There's a scene in the movie where uh, Mark Ruffalo uh, steals Kira Knightley's iPod or her iPhone, and he's like, oh, "I'm going to listen to your. I'm going I'm to see what's in your in your collection." This is the thing that I referenced in our opening. He's like, "I want to see what's in your collection," and uh, and she's like, "No, don't look at don't look at my iPod. I have so many guilty pleasures." He's like, "You can tell a lot about a person by what's in their music collection," which is like a great kind of sentiment, kind of a great line. Mm-hmm. And then they proceed like they just got done talking about 
guilty pleasures and and songs you would be embarrassed to have other people discover in your collection. So then it immediately cuts to a montage of them walking around the city and they are listening to Frank Sinatra's version of Luck Be a Lady. And then that's followed by For Once in My Life by Stevie Wonder. And that was followed by some other fantastic song that is in no way a guilty pleasure like you have to be an idiot to think that any well, of those are guilty okay, pleasures but i mean it was it just made it, it upset me well you know i mean a lot happened on that walk okay i mean time is being compressed i mean you, you can't expect that they're going to play like a, a a song that is sort of a completely left of center you know weird inappropriate song over that scene because because it's supposed to be a romantic or at least a a, a, a type of walk that that builds their relationship together so I, yeah but but they just they just got done saying the line you can tell a lot about a person by what's in their music collection so then they go into a scene where it's like oh so uh you've uh downloaded the greatest hits of some of the the great people like what you have a bunch of greatest hits albums on your on your ipod i guess i can tell a lot about how banal you are and uninteresting well i think yeah i mean i heard you i heard you when i said it the first time and i understand what you're saying and obviously we disagree on this point here but i'm just saying like within this montage sequence when they're walking through the city it doesn't necessarily need to follow uh that they're going to be listening to the guilty pleasures when they're walking around at that moment in the film even when you've got three or four songs right in a row you can't throw in one of the guilty pleasures you can't do a, a little humorous aside you can't do something well, like what did that what did that tell me about her? What did that tell me about them? What how did how did the music enhance that at all? Okay. Especially in reference to what had just happened in the film. What they had just said in the film. Well, okay, no, no. I hear what you're saying. I totally hear what you're saying and I understand your perspective. And we can <laughs> argue about this further. I'm not I'm not mad at you. You look you're getting really defensive. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> No, no, no. This is good radio, right? This is good podcasting. I'm not mad. I'm not mad at you, Andrew. I'm just <laughs> I think to, you're upset just, that I don't like this movie. No, I just want to match your enthusiasm on this. I just want to. <laughs> I just want to do like a. I just want this. Our perspectives to you know. Clash. To clash. Okay. Fine. Well, they do. Fine. They definitely clash because. Well, anyway, so so there's that's our position on some some aspects of this movie. Well, let's move on to another thing, which is this is going to be a spoiler alert, folks. Um, we're going to talk about the way the movie concludes. Um, and so be forewarned about this. You might want to skip ahead or, or, or you know, avoid this the next few minutes of what we're about to talk about. If you're planning on watching the movie, we're going to talk a little bit about important things. Yeah. That would spoil it for you. So spoiler alert. So this is an interesting perhaps unusual romantic comedy. And I was looking at my notes that I was going to draw from for this podcast. And I was thinking about how at the end of this film, Keira Knightley's character does not end up with either Adam Levine or Mark Ruffalo. She basically concludes the film. She's riding her bike through the city and she has this deliriously happy expression on her face. The wind's blowing through her, And, and basically it seems like a celebration of, uh, of independence and in in all fairness, at the time of the the viewing of the film, and and up until quite recently, I was thinking to myself that this was an interesting sort of subversion of a, a familiar idea that a lot of romantic comedies have, where the man and the woman end up with somebody, 
In this case, the woman would have to choose between the good guy, who may be the underdog, and the other guy who may have more money or, or other assets. Right. But he's kind of a jerk. And so in this film, she ends up with neither. And part of me was thinking, oh, well, that's, you know, that's interesting. That's different. That's, that seems to be making a nice statement that, that I can get behind about, you know, being independent, whether you're a man or woman. Um, but another thing that sort of occurred to me while I was watching the film and then I kind of brought it home just recently, which was it almost seemed like the concluding events of the film were a subversion in a way, but they were also kind of like trying to be different than what people would expect. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of felt like the events that concluded the film in a way were there and they happened that way. Because it wasn't what you expected. It's almost like it would have been. Are you trying to say that it felt a little bit overcalculated? Is that what you're saying? Overcalculated, perhaps, is the term. Um, or, or calculated. That's, Go ahead. That's that's sort of my feeling about the entire film, is that everything was a little bit too cute mm-hmm. by half. Uh, it, it just kind of. Uh, well, you know, what I was saying earlier, it sort of reeked of disingenuousness because it, it wasn't. Uh, like it didn't feel organic or natural for that ending to to happen. Um, it didn't feel unnatural necessarily. I don't. I don't think that it was a bad ending, but uh, but it did feel to me. Again, you haven't seen once, so uh, mm-hmm. you can spoil you it. Necessarily... Well, no, no. But once, I'll just say this: that once has a very, very organic and very perfect natural ending to it that all is also sort of a subversion it's not your typical ending to a romantic film like that right and uh and it 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 was really really very moving and it was very touching and it was it's exceedingly beautiful um and a gesture that is made in the end of that film is so perfect Mm -hmm. that it feels right and it felt like this was trying to do that again begin again and, yeah begin again um but they already did it once uh, yeah they did it the first time gotcha okay <laughs> uh, but uh so so i i just you know i looked at it and i was i was kind of i i was unimpressed by by the the way that they ended it um mostly because it felt it felt forced it felt calculated it felt uh it felt disingenuous okay i hear you yeah I, as far as what I said earlier about the ending, I, I do agree that it's it is a little bit sort of in a way it was almost unsatisfying. And, and what happens at the end of the film is it ends on kind of a questioning note as to what's going to happen next and and what did happen. And yes. then it, it goes into the credit sequence followed by, you know, one of those small boxes in the left hand side of the screen where, yeah. where you're seeing additional scenes. And like normally, you know, you might see bloopers there, but but you quickly realize that what's happening is perhaps <laughs> we assume is the what happens next, the ex- the extension of the ending that we just watched. And in a way, it kind of allows the filmmakers to sort of s- skate past a true resolve to the story yeah. like to really resolve yeah. what happens like like we spent two hours with these characters we want to know what what's gonna be the the fate of them we don't want to know how that night ends we want to know how you know the next several nights ends or we want to know what's gonna where, who are they gonna go home to what's gonna happen in the future 
And the very end of the film does not quite give you that, but you're almost distracted by that, by these extra scenes that are going on during the credits. Yeah. And, um, and that to me is, was the, um, of course it's the very last thing that you see, but that to me was kind of like the apex of this almost, you know, cutesiness that I liked up until the very end when I thought like, what, what, what are we invested in here? What are the stakes? You know, as far as- I, I I still thought that it was just more it was more of the disingenuousness from the rest of the film. It just felt uh, it felt like he was trying to to placate the like the real music lovers out there because the whole that whole epilogue is is sort of them being like well, we're gonna shake the system by you know releasing an album for a dollar. <laughs> God, yeah. we're gonna make the money ourselves, and then they're like, "Whoa, you sold ten thousand copies in one whoa. day! Whoa, in one day! Whoa, crazy!" And it it, it just it's like, okay, uh, great, all right, I guess. Um, not only does is that sort of an old paradigm by this point. I mean, it's an old, you know, it's an old paradigm. People have been doing that for a while, and other than the fact that it's not shaking up the movie in, or the music industry, it's not doing anything to to change the way you know spotify destroys artists right. by paying them nothing in royalties like it's not it's not helping but it's almost um, so like it, it felt it felt like an, an old fuddy-duddies sort of <laughs> a Luddite. conception of like how to how to shake up the the music industry it, it, to it me felt, it, it wasn't so much about shaking up the music system as it was just showing success we stuck to our guns and we were successful which is a, a sort of a trope in a lot of american films in particular that goes back to one example that I like to cite for this phenomenon, which is Field of Dreams from 1989, where, um, you know, to give you a recap, at the end of the film, they build this baseball field out of a cornfield. You're going gonna to spoil the Field of Dreams for people? <laughs> I know. This is a sin. Okay. This is a sin. You'll, you'll know. Okay. I'm not spoiling it. They basically build a baseball field because this is what Kevin Costner's dreams were telling him to do. It was his heart saying, you must build this field. And at the very end of the film, the last shot is an overhead shot of a, a sea of cars driving to their farm. And they're all there to experience this this wonderful thing that Kevin right. Costner created with because he, he just followed his heart and soul. And it's like, it's not enough that they just followed their heart and soul. You've got to prove that they're going to be successful and they might get rich off of it. And it's all like, we did it. You know, it's like, it doesn't just matter that they were able to do what, what was in their hearts or whatever. But it's like, you know, like the phenomenon at the end of Begin Again, where it's like, there's got to be some kind of success that's that's tangible. Yeah, except except I, I feel like if you're going to make that analogy in Field of Dreams, it's not just that they're going to be. I don't I don't think that that whole pullback is to show that they're going to be financially successful. Well, no, I didn't say it has to I, be I, that. It's just success. Yeah, it's success, but it's also it's it. You know, that whole movie is about America and America's pastime and the love of the game and the the sort of shared consciousness that we have. Uh, and kinship we have with the sport of baseball. And so when that happens at the end, it shows that other people believe too, uh, that he's not alone in the world. You know, that's, that's what that's all about. Well, I, yeah, um, no, I, I have no qualm there. I think we're just sort of, you know, no, but I'm saying in this film, there, no, there's none of that there. There's no subtext. There's nothing else. It's just showing them being financially successful and happy. It's, it's a, it's, it's not a universal, it, it, it's not making a universal statement. It's just focusing on the the characters and, and their lives. 
Well, that's my point. Yeah, I, I yeah, but I I would counter. Well, why isn't it though? Like, why why wouldn't it be something larger than just what the characters are going through? Because to me, it, it is. It's it's the underdogs triumphing in this case. It's the people who you know were were didn't have the means that the big dogs had, but they were still able to. Not only did they finish the album, but look, it's a huge hit. You know, they they were vindicated. I guess, but I mean, I the 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 conventional methods for doing it weren't really the enemy. I mean, most deaf plays the the record producer right in the movie, and he and he is gonna he bites on it after he's gonna he's gonna do it. But isn't that only after it's a success? No, it's after it's an it's an album. That's the whole thing that that she she basically said, "Screw you! I don't want your charity. Uh-huh. I'm gonna go do this myself." She could have ta- like he would have come back at her. That was the whole conversation that she and Mark Ruffalo had at the end. He would have come back at her. Oh, okay. But she took it away and decided to do it on her own. Bah, screw the system. Bah, we're gonna shake the foundations. Bah. I I it, it just it was it just rang so false to me. I it felt like what somebody it felt like what a focus group thinks that music lovers want to see in a movie is what it felt like. It felt gross to me. Wow. Well, there you have it. Um, so <laughs> when it comes down to... But I really like James Corden and Haley Steinfeld. <laughs> okay. See the film for those two actors, says Andrew. <laughs> All right. Well, so that's... I guess that's about it. I mean, we... That is about I, it. I would say I would recommend this film to somebody um, if, who's interested in seeing it and they're not sure if they want to see it or not. I would recommend it. I would not. I would say that it is not worth your time. I would say go watch once instead. It's a wonderful, beautiful, very touching, very moving film. And it is full of all the heart that this movie does not have an ounce of. This movie has none of the heart of the previous incarnation. Gotcha. So um, join us for our next episode where we do a listener's choice. It's going to be Excalibur sent to us by Calvin. The 1981 John Borman film. Right. The the epic sword and sorcery tale of King Arthur and Merlin, Knights of the Round Table. And Lancelot and Guinevere and Morgana. And Percival, one of my favorite Percival. characters. Oh, yeah. So uh, uh, we'll be talking about that one. Gawain. Gawain, that's right. <laughs> Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. A very young <laughs> Liam Neeson, yeah. And also Patrick Stewart's in this movie, too. Patrick Stewart's in it. Yeah. All kinds of people are in it. Young Gabriel Burns in it. That's right. Yeah. So we'll have a lot to talk about. So join us for that podcast coming at you real soon. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.